From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. It's not that you just don't talk about things, but it's that we need to talk about things. Like we need to talk about with our children what being anti-racist or what white privilege is or what white supremacy is. Like we need to name these things because I want my kids to grow up with those tools better than I have. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Caitlin B. Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. She's a monthly columnist for Sojourners and has contributed to On Being and Religion News Service and has been featured on CBS and USA Today and The New Yorker. Caitlin Curtis is the author of Glory Happening, and today we're talking about her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. Caitlin Curtis, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to spend most of the hour exploring and expanding upon this question, but let's start out so that our listeners have some background with you and how you are thinking about your own identity. How do you introduce yourself when you are first getting on a stage to speak to people or when you are first introducing yourself to a group that is going to be discussing your work? Yeah, like you said, I introduce myself as an author, a speaker, a poet, and then it gets complex within identity, but I am a Potawatomi woman and I'm also a person of European descent. And so I talk a lot about being mixed in my ethnicity, mixed culture. And then I'm a Christian, kind of, I'd say I'm on the periphery of Christianity. I'm, I'm exploring Christianity in that way. But yeah, I began writing. I've always been writing, but I really began writing after my first son was born. And that's when I started exploring writing through my blog. And so writing has just been this really amazing journey for me. And so I've always been a writer. It's always just been a part of who I am. And so right now in my life, it's just all of these sort of identities converging together in a really interesting way. Well, and that word identity, I think, is important for us to linger on because it plays into the reflections that you bring in your book, Native. And in particular, identity can be described in a, in a multiplicity of different ways. And so in your book, you look at, for example, identity as DNA, or identity as holding a particular type of card with your picture on it, or identity as culture, or identity as language. And so when you use that word identity, I'm going to assume, because I've read your book, that it encompasses all of those and more. But for a listener who's just encountering this for the first time and has thought of identity in a pretty simplistic way, how should we begin to make that question of identity more complex? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Identity 
is such a loaded term, really. And I think that because it's such a loaded, complex term, we want to make it easier. And so we, I think we tend to try to water it down or box it in a certain way so that it's not so complicated. But I think that as humans, the idea of identity is just full of liminal space. Like there's so much in there where so many of us, no matter who we are, we're, we're living in these different spaces of our life. We're trying to to label ourselves or explain who we are or what we care about. And it's complicated. And I wanted to be able to express that in native. So I'm, you know, I'm sharing my experiences, but I wanted people to be able to read it and reflect on their own identities. You know, where in my life has who I am shifted and what did that become? And what did I call it? You know, did it make sense to other people? Did it not? Like it is a very complicated thing, but I think we need to spend time with the idea of this word and what it means to all of us. So in your book, Native, you examine this question of identity. And one of the ways that you do that is you look at the controversy surrounding the presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren. So at one point when she was applying for a university scholarship, she claimed Native American heritage. And then later she took a DNA test and you say something, and I'm not going to get the language exactly right, but it's it's almost like she's claiming identity as an object that she can hold on to. Whereas if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying in Native, identity is not something that we have, but rather something that has us. Now, first of all, am I understanding that distinction correctly? And is there more that you want to say about that? Yeah, I think it's hard to explain some of this to the general American culture at large the ways that kinship is a part of our identity as native peoples, the way that we belong to our tribe or our people. And what tends to happen is that white people in America tend to sort of romanticize native identity without wanting any of the trauma that comes with who we are. And so there are a lot of stories. I mean, I meet people all the time who will meet me and they'll say, oh, I'm my great grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee. It's like a line that we know to repeat because it's a part of America that's hidden in there, you know? And, and so trying to share the thing about Warren and how hard that was and the complexity of it, that there are things I really appreciated about her, but also I could see the way that what she did was damaging, especially my Cherokee kin, damaging the relationships they're trying to have and without doing a true apology that explains why it was problematic. And you could even see on social media the way that people were coming for Native people who are trying to speak up about it, that people didn't understand what we were trying to say. There's not a clarity in trying to understand what we were talking about in this way of kinship or belonging or identity. I want to honor the care with which you just said that, that you both appreciate what Elizabeth Warren was doing, but also that there were problems with what Elizabeth Warren was doing. For a listener who may be coming to this question without a lot of background, just briefly, what fundamentally was the problem with what Elizabeth Warren was doing in that moment? The lack of clarity for her to say it was wrong for my family to claim to be, or for me to mark native on something when that's not who I am. I'm not connected to a tribe. I don't have kinship or identity where I'm connected to these people. And she did apologies, but they weren't apologies that helped people understand why it was a problem. And that's what, for me, just personally for me and listening to my Cherokee friends, like that's what the problem was, was there was not a, 
I'm sorry I did this thing, but here's why it's a problem. Because what happens is, you know, political people or people in different spaces have these things come up. And then indigenous people are the ones that get stuck in the middle and are sort of fired at from all sides. And so that's what happened in this situation. Native ideas of belonging and kinship, that's the thing that got attacked most in that space. And that's why it was so hurtful and damaging. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Caitlin B. Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're discussing her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. In our conversation so far, you've been using this term kinship, and maybe we should slow down and explore what kinship means. Yeah. So my friend Daniel Heath Justice has a really incredible book. So throughout Native, I quote many, many Indigenous authors. I did that purposefully so that people who read the book can go to other authors and learn from them the way that I've learned from them. Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, and Daniel Heath Justice wrote a book called Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. And both of these writers, for me, have taught me a lot about what kinship means this idea of relationship. Like we talk about kinship with not just humans, but with non-human kin, you know, the creatures of the earth and the earth itself. How do we have kinship? How do we practice belonging with one another, whether we are alike or not? For me, kinship and solidarity kind of go together in my mind. Like these are, we are sharing oneness with each other. Like we have a common ground of love that we need to share with one another. And so we care for each other in a really deep way. I'm thinking as you're saying this, that some listeners might say, oh, yes. And and when we talk about kinship with non-human kin, for example, they may think of a story that they heard when they were a child or something like that. But I, I also want to lift up that if you're coming from a biblical background, if you're looking at Bible stories, there's a kinship there too. If we think about the whale you know, that swallows Jonah. Or if we think about the donkey that speaks to Balaam, like there are examples of animals that are interacting with humans in ways that reflect divine influence. And one of the things that struck me about your book, Native, was how you weave through these stories about animal kinship into the world of human spirituality. Let's linger there for a moment. So when you're talking about kinship with non-human kin, what role do animals play? What role do trees play? What role does the created world play in giving us wisdom about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in Western society and Western thought, we have been taught that as people, we dominate, you know, and we are the best of all the creatures and we get to do what we want on this earth. We get to control it. We get to consume it however we want. and What is really important to me and what I've been learning as an adult is that it is okay to make ourselves small and humble when it comes to the creatures of the earth. I have this uh, image I use a lot in my writing and I use it native of, you know, can we learn to just go and sit beneath trees and listen? Can we learn to be in the presence of these huge beings that have been here for centuries? And can we just sit and listen? and learn from them and let them teach us instead of always being the ones that need to teach others. And that's a scary concept for a lot of people. It's scary to willingly make yourself small or willingly put yourself in that place. And, you know, and especially in American ideals, like we don't want to think that way because 
we have consumed the land and we've cut the land up and we've profited off the land. So, and the water and everything. So how would we do that? You know, and for me, that has been a huge part of my journey of returning to myself and to the earth is learning to sit and be still and to learn from an ant or to learn from a snail or to learn from my dog, to learn from the ocean and let it speak. Like those are all valid ways of existing in the world and they're very important but we lose that along the way i think there's a story that you tell in your book native and forgive me if i've misremembered this and please correct me if i if i have misremembered a detail but my understanding was you were teaching in a church and you were teaching about the genesis creation stories and one of the things that one of the young people that you were working with sort of picked up from that was yes our job is to subjugate the earth our job is to basically have dominion over the earth and that was the takeaway that this listener was getting from that story first of all have i remembered that correctly and what needs to be corrected in that narrative of subjugation and dominion it was actually a class that my partner was teaching at but it was at a christian college you know and so they're teaching this class. And yes, one of the students, that's, you know, that's what he got from it. That's what I grew up learning in the Baptist church. You know, we never talked about, I don't ever remember hearing about care for the earth or relationship with the earth. It was always just like, you're a human. So do your thing and dominate and save souls. You know, that was like, that was it, you know, that was our job. And we have to be able to undo that. There was a, a thing last year on Twitter at, uh, Union Theological Seminary, I believe, they did an event where they apologized to plants. They basically did, you know, they had this service and it was very intimate and relational and people really, they freaked out. They were really uncomfortable with this idea of why would you apologize to a, a plant for something? You know, it really was hard for me because I'm seeing this Christianity that I grew up with and I'm seeing even progressives like making fun of people for practicing relationship. And it's really hard. It's really hard to undo these things that we've been taught. It's really hard to say, what if all those plants and these things out there have agency and have something to teach us? And that's just, it's beyond what we've been taught. And it, I think it really like, it's a different part of our soul to be using and a, our brain that we are just not used to. That's why I encourage everyone to read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, because she's a scientist, but she's indigenous. And so she's just so beautifully teaching people how to live and think differently with the creatures of the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Caitlin B. Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're discussing her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking to Caitlin B. Curtis. She is a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, she's a Christian, and she's a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're discussing her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. Well, before the break, we were talking about the ways in which kinship in the way that you're exploring it in your book, Native, includes not only kinship to other human beings, but also kinship to the land and to non-human kin as well. And there was an image in your book, Native, that really stuck with me. And it was when you were living in one of your, your homes in Atlanta, you had a tree in the backyard. And that tree was a connecting point to one of your ancestors. Tell us a little bit about that tree and how that fits into this wider question of kinship we've been talking about. Yeah, I wanted to share that story in the book because I knew that it would bother some people. You know, it was one of those stories where I just, I wanted to give an example. You know, there's a lot of examples of this that I would not share that are personal enough that they won't be shared. But that was one story that I felt like I needed to just make this connection for people, that there was this tree that always reminded me of my grandma, who was Potawatomi and who died when I was in high school. And, you know, she has, I write in Glory Happening, even a dream about her house that burned down years ago. But, you know, she has visited me in dreams like this. This is what our ancestors do. And I wanted to share a story about that, how our ancestors still speak to us. And we believe that that's true and that that's an important way of being the people we need to be today is to continue listening to our ancestors as they speak to us, as we learn from them. And so sharing that story just felt really important to come up against the Western ideas that we can't connect to nature in that way and that there's not relationship. And then also just to share that ancestry and these ideas of learning from our ancestors are still really important as well. So let's make that concrete for the listeners. So in what way, when you walked out and you you were standing next to this tree, in what way was your grandmother present to you? You know, the, the thing that I write about in the book is a sense of laughter. So it was like a very much so like pine cones are falling on my head and I know that I'm not alone. And it's also just a sense of God too. You know, we all have those experiences of God is here. You know, moments where it seems much more real that there is mystery here. There is sacredness here in this place. And I can hold on to that. And that's just what it was to me. It was always a, a really beautiful just space in my backyard where I knew that I was not alone and I was being held there. And I, in Atlanta, we live on Muscogee Creek land. So I'm not saying that, that their ancestors are speaking to me or, you know, I am a guest on this land, but I am saying that in the strange way that spirituality works, (laughs) there was a space there that I felt held and I felt known. And saying goodbye to that tree when we moved was a really beautiful and sad moment. And and I wasn't expecting it, but it was really um, important to say goodbye to that tree and that, that space. What I'm hearing you saying is that kinship and ancestry in one way is a recognition of not being alone in the universe, of connectedness. But you describe another moment in the book Native where you're not just aware of being a daughter of ancestors, but you also suddenly become aware that you yourself are an ancestor in some way. What was that moment like? Yeah. So my friend Amy took me out to take some headshots for, you know, photos for my books and my online writing. And when I got 
those photos back, you know, I'm just look, I'm looking at this photo and realizing that photos are so much of how we connect to our ancestors. Photos are what we have if we don't have memories or if our memories, you know, escape us. Like we have a photo. I'm looking at a photo right now of my grandma. Like we have these photos of these people that we can visit and remember. And as she's taking my picture, she's pulling those feelings out of me of, you know, one day you're going to be an ancestor to your children and to your grandchildren. What does that feel like? And I was overwhelmed with emotion. And we say that a lot, like what'll be written in your obituary, but to think of it as like, what kind of ancestor will you be? And not just a legacy, but like, how will who you are live on in the people who come after you? And what world are you helping them create? Like that, that's a very powerful image that we don't think about a lot. Well, and it runs very different to the kind of rugged individualist narrative that we often get as Americans. We're told that it's the self-created person or what have you. It's a very different model that you are putting forward here, a model of giftedness and givingness. And those are my words, not yours, so maybe you have better words for them. But when I characterize it that way, of, of receiving a gift and passing that gift along, does that sound right to you? And, and how would you expand on that idea of giftedness and giving? Yeah, I mean, it's the idea that it's a cycle, you know, and that's what you're describing. That's what I, I mean, my whole book is based on cycles. That's an important part of my culture. It's an important part of who we are. You know, our life is not just like birth and death on a linear and then it's done. Like we live in these cycles of you're born and you have these cycles of life. You have adulthood, you have childhood, you have when you become an elder. And then your spirit passes on and then you continue speaking to those who come next. We don't always think of it that way in, in cycles. That's not, again, that's not something in Western thought that we do. We think we like linear and linear doesn't really work. It's not the way that look at the seasons of the earth. They're not linear, you know, it, they're cycles. And so we're meant to learn from that. We're meant to learn from these seasons of life. And that's, that's something I find great comfort in is knowing that these cycles continue and that they're meant to be a constant give and take, like you were saying. As we're moving in this direction in the conversation, we're moving into territory of a phrase that really stuck with me from your book, Native. It's a phrase, holistic faith. And my understanding of that is tied up in what you're saying, the the recognition that we're not lone in the universe, but rather we are connected in ways that are both visible and invisible, that are both familial and non-familiar. And the, the ways in which our faith needs to acknowledge that is more than simply, like you're saying, in a linear process of I'm going to show up at church and I'm going to sing some songs and I'm going to go home and back to my regular life. And so as I'm beginning to describe my understanding of holistic faith, what have I got right and what should I add to that to really get at what you're talking about when you use this phrase holistic faith? Yeah, I think of the word integration, like how, how do we integrate all of who we are, no matter who we are, how do we integrate all of who we are into our faith and tell the truth at the same time and face our own trauma? And sadly, you know, for me, the church has not been the place where I've done that. I write about different church experiences throughout the book, but I remember having this season of life when I was at a church where, you know, I was sort of being told I needed to compartmentalize and I was trying to tell them I don't compartmentalize, <laughs> you know, like... I have to bring all of who I am into whatever space I'm inhabiting or I don't exist there. And that is really difficult 
to explain to a Western patriarchal mind, you know, or system. That's not a way to comprehend things. We are supposed to show up and leave behind certain bits of ourselves or make it easier on others by leaving pieces of ourselves at the door so that it doesn't make others uncomfortable. And I had to choose not to live that way anymore. And it cost me things and it made the church a much more difficult place for me to exist in to the point that I did have to step away for a while. And so those are tough conversations and ways to visualize who we're supposed to be. But holistic faith was the best way that I could describe it and come up with the way that I was imagining it or embodying that complete wholeness for myself, at least. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Caitlin B. Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're talking about her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. I'd like to make this notion of integration concrete for our listeners, and I'm going to go to an image that you use in the book. It may not be the best image, and if there's a better one, please correct me. But you talk about holding two different identification cards. One card is your driver's license, and the other card is a card that identifies you as a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation. Now, first of all, for listeners who may be unfamiliar, let's talk for a moment about that second identification card. What is it, how does one get it, and what does it mean? So not all tribes in the United States are federally recognized by the government. And so my tribe is a tribe that's federally recognized. And we didn't even get that recognition until not very long ago. So it's it's a process and a lot of tribes are not allowed to get there. And so uh, my tribe is federally recognized, which means that I can have this card that shows I'm Potawatomi. And so I can use it in airports like at TSA. It is a valid form of ID, things like that. You know, there are some tribes that don't have this, and that doesn't mean that people are any less a part of their tribe. You know, we have to understand how diverse tribal citizenship and belonging and all of these ideas are, which is not something I could fully go into in the book, of course, but if that's something people want to learn and understand about, they can look those things up. So I got my first tribal ID when I was little with my father, and then I got a new one when we went back to visit Oklahoma a few years ago. And so it's Just for me, it's always been something that has reminded me of who I am. And I think that maybe even I write about being in the purity movement in the Baptist church as a teenager. And I think in my life, that was kind of a moment where I was like, right at the pinnacle of white assimilated Christianity. So I would almost hold my tribal idea up against that like purity ring and say that that purity ring was like where I only allowed a part of myself to exist and the other part was silenced and using that idea and being proud of it and knowing who I am and integrating all the parts of who I am has made me more whole. And it's made me, you know, come to recognize like that I'm a white coded native person. So I, I have European ancestry and I'm Potawatomi. I have white privilege but I am also an indigenous woman and that's different than just being a white woman. And, you know, so all of these things where I am integrating all the parts of who I am and it is hard. And there are a lot of us who have parts of ourselves that we have silenced because America tells us to, or the church tells us to. And so trying to bring all those pieces together was something I wanted to do in native for others who are trying to do the same thing. 
and have a hard time doing it. I wanted my book to be a place for them to sort of breathe and know that they could exist there as well. I appreciate the fullness of that answer. And I want to linger with that image for the sake of the listeners just for a moment. So passing through an airport security check, you, because you identify as a white-coated indigenous woman, you have that option in that moment of putting forward your state-issued driver's license, which codes you as white and all the privileges that go with that, or the choice of putting forward that Potawatomi identification card, which codes you as other. And you said a moment ago that you are working hard to bring all of yourselves in an integrated way and that it's difficult. And part of the work of that, if I'm hearing you correctly, is choosing at key moments to lay down the ease of privilege, the straight line, and to bring in the complexity of the cycle and say, no, we we have we have unfinished business here that we have to deal with. And and doing that work in real time is something that has been evolving for you. And the reason why I say that is because at one point in the book, you talk about going to a conference and having sort of sat in the audience, as I think Brian McLaren is speaking, you sort of said to yourself initially, I'm not going to bring that stuff to the stage, all of that complexity. I'm just going to be a conference speaker and let the code do the work for me. And then you choose differently as as time goes by. You You choose instead to bring that complexity in. Talk to me a little bit about that evolving understanding, what it is that led you from the ease of the straight line to the complexity of that choice. Yeah, I didn't grow up in a household where we talked about white privilege. Like I've never even, you know, I had never heard of that growing up. I didn't know that was a thing, but I also didn't know that we had our own language as Potawatomi people. Like there's so many, there's so many things. And right now in this sort of um, anti-racist moment that we're in, it's not that you just don't talk about things, but it's that we need to talk about things. Like we need to talk about with our children what being anti-racist or what white privilege is or what white supremacy is. Like we need to name these things because I want my kids to grow up with those tools better than I have. I think that when I started writing about my identity online and I was a worship leader at the time and there were people at this church I was working at who were saying that they were uncomfortable with me. And that was one of the first times where I realized like, I've been at this church for a few years now. And I, what I write in the book is, you know, the church wants what is white in me, but not what is native in me. It was one of those moments where I knew that these people who know me, they, they like the white parts of me, but if I start naming all of myself, they don't want it. And that was a moment in my life where I realized that I'm going to do everything I can to be who I am fully because that's just a repetition of my adolescence without being able to name the trauma of silencing part of myself. That was the cycle I was going to repeat unless I chose not to repeat it. And absolutely, I have white privilege where I can choose and that's a reality. And I am aware of that. You know, if I take, if one of my black or brown native friends takes their ID and shows that at an airport, they are going to be treated far worse than I am as a white-coated Potawatomi woman. But also, when I do hand that ID over, people get uncomfortable, no matter who they are. There are very few moments where I put it in their hand and they smile at me and are glad that I'm there. Those are very, very few moments. And ask other Natives that, and they'll tell you similar experiences. And so that just shows that people are not, either don't think we're still here, or are holding up those stereotypes that make it really uncomfortable for them. And so 
I want to exist in my body with the privilege I have to name these things so that I can make room for others to name these things as well. That's, that's important to me and it's worth losing whatever I lose for the sake of it. You mentioned a moment ago, not even realizing that the Potawatomi had a language of their own. And a very moving moment for me in your book, Native, is when you first kind of rediscover for yourself that language and what it sounds like. If I'm recalling, you were listening to a recording of the language, I think maybe when you were standing in your kitchen. But take, take us back to that moment. What was it like to hear that language of the Potawatomi people for the first time? And how did that change you and inform you from that moment. Yeah, like you said, I didn't know that we had a language growing up. And when I found out as an adult, when I found this out, I also, I'm so grateful my tribe has an online language learning program. And so I went and found it on our website and there's a download where you can download a prayer. So it's just a really short prayer in Potawatomi. And um, since then has been a really important part of who I am as being able to pray in Potawatomi, not just in English, you know, because our languages have been taken from us. Like it's a tool of colonization and genocide to take our languages so that we are not allowed to speak them. And that's part of the reason why I never knew we had a language is this this generational oppression of don't speak your language, you know, assimilate basically. And so coming back to, oh my God, like, like there's a, there's a language I can learn and I've always loved languages. So knowing that like, I have one that speaks to who I am and and was spoken by my ancestors, like knowing that depth and richness in that first moment of listening, it just felt sort of otherworldly, you know, like it was just something so incredible and filling, but something that I never knew was possible, I guess. And now I know that that's very possible and that I can meet with other groups who speak our languages. And there are lots of us who are trying to relearn our languages but it's because of what has been done to us that we have to do that, which makes it really an act of resistance, you know, to know that like we are learning our languages because we are still here and because we want our children to know who they are. And our languages are so connected to the spiritual aspect of our culture. You know, the words that we use are really important and they hold such depth and meaning. And I love being able to learn those things. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Caitlin B. Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're talking about her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Caitlin B. Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're discussing her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. 
a moment ago we were talking about your moment of rediscovery of the Potawatomi language. And you make a comment in your book, Native, that I think is worth exploring for just a moment. When you talk about the rediscovery of the prayers that are available in the Potawatomi language, you say that you had been limited prior to that by only thinking about God in English, and that now thinking about God in Potawatomi has expanded the way that you have understood divinity. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. What has the exposure to this different way of speaking given you in terms of prayer and religious understanding? Yeah, you know, I grew up not just praying in English, but praying to a very sort of patriarchal God, this old white man, the Zeus kind of character that we, many of us have been given. And when I started writing my first book, Glory Happening, you know, I was just starting to expand my worldview of, instead of just praying to God as he or whatever, I, I was expanding to mystery more. And that, that helped me a lot. So I, I think I kind of took it in stages. And so then to go, to be able to pray in Potawatomi and understand what that mystery is or isn't that I don't know, but that it's out there and that I can engage with a different way of understanding what mystery is, has been very, very healing for me. Being able to not just pray in English to a patriarchal God, but to know that I'm praying in a way that my ancestors have prayed and that I can learn to see the sacred in the way that they have seen the sacred is really powerful. And it comes up against colonization in every way. So in doing that, I am decolonizing, you know, I'm, I'm breaking apart those systems that I was taught. This is the way you view God. This is what God is like. Jesus is also white. You know, I'm able to slowly break down those systems for myself. And then, like I said earlier, it helps me integrate the parts of who I am. At several points in this conversation, you've talked about patriarchy and the patriarchal God, and that leads us to uh, something that you're dealing with in the last part of your book, what we might call the pain of church spaces, that pain is in many ways coded into worship and the sort of exploration of the divine, and in particular in, in a westernized and in many ways an American context. And so let's talk about that a little bit. When we're talking about the pain of church spaces, if I'm following what you've been saying in this conversation, part of that pain is the demand that certain aspects of identity be left at the door. Have I heard that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So when we're looking at a church space that demands that we leave things at the door, how do we confront that church space and begin to name what has been left behind and the pain that that has caused? Well, the hard thing about that is that in a lot of spaces, when you, if you become the one who tries to name it, that doesn't mean you'll be accepted or heard. And I also want to say this isn't, you know, we tend to be like, oh yes, conservatives are so much, they're just like that. And that is true, but progressive spaces do the same thing. Sometimes they do it in different ways. And so I, I think it's important to have this sort of conversation of the white church in general, you know, like how are we participating in white supremacy or assimilation of people in all of these white church spaces? You know, we went to a church that prided itself on being progressive, but it was predominantly white middle-class church. And I would bring things up and it would get ignored. You know, I would bring things up like, you know, hey, there are ice raids happening in Atlanta. What are we going to do? And nothing. That's showing me that there are certain people who are not being cared for or acknowledged in these spaces. And 
eventually we chose to leave that space and some people stay in it. And it, that is up to the individuals. Like I, I've had this conversation so many times with people. Do we stay and fight or do we leave? What is my level of what I can handle? And I think that those things are different for different people. I've been leading worship in some form in the church since I was like 12 or 13. And so there was a point where I needed to step away for a little bit. (laughs) And that's the current season that I am in, you know, is being able to have a break from the institution and ask what it has meant to me and who I need to be in this moment. We need to keep having these conversations because we are still in a very heated, important moment of like American identity. And that includes the church. That includes because the church has colonized alongside the government, you know, throughout history. So we, we have to have these conversations and they are hard. And I believe that some churches are doing it. And then I believe a lot are not doing it. And so we just need to keep talking about it. There's a short passage from your book, Native, that I want to read to you and then ask for you to reflect with me about it. You write, if the church wants to be a safe space for anyone, it must begin with care for the most vulnerable. And if the church cannot be honest about the way it treats the most vulnerable, colonization will only continue to manifest itself within and outside church walls. And you've given us pieces of this throughout the conversation, but I really want to begin to bring it together. How has your rediscovery of identification with your Potawatomi ancestry and heritage helped you to be attentive to the voices of the vulnerable that you are finding both within and outside the walls of the church? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is where so much of my solidarity work and intersectionality, which of course, you know, is a term a term that's coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a Black teacher and educator. The ideas of intersectionality that minorities or people who have been oppressed, that our oppressions overlap and that there are important conversations that we need to have in these overlaps. And so for me, practicing solidarity with, and I name people in the book, I name different types of populations because I didn't want the book to just be about native people. Obviously it's my story, but I can't do my work unless I'm acknowledging the pain of others who have been abused by the church in different ways. So, you know, I'm learning from my disabled friends and I'm learning from my queer and two-spirit and trans friends. And I'm learning from my black friends and I'm learning from my friends who are people of color and from women. And like, this has to be intersectional work and it has to be work of solidarity where we are asking how America and the church and the government and our social spaces, like how, how can we, push them to be better by having these honest conversations. And we, there've been people who've been asking this for generations. Like people have been, we've been having the same conversation for so long and we're having it again right now. And I don't know what it will take for it to happen, but I think that it is happening. I think that it is happening in our time and it'll happen in our children's time. It'll continue to happen because oppression will always be there and it'll take different forms. And And I hope that we can find ways to be honest about it and to have these conversations. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Caitlin Curtis. She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. We're discussing her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. 
Well, I want to foreground, and perhaps I should have foregrounded this earlier in the conversation, that I am a cis-presenting, heterosexual-presenting, white, middle-aged male. So that's my visible presentation. That's the privilege that I bring into this conversation. You are a you are identifying as a white-coded Potawatomi woman, which means that you have identities and privileges in this conversation as well. One of the things that you highlight in your book, Native, is the fact that oftentimes people who visually present and culturally present like I do look to people who identify like you do to do a lot of the heavy lifting for us in these kinds of conversations. So I want to acknowledge that as I ask this next question. Some of my listeners, maybe many of my listeners, are people who identify visually and culturally with the kind of white privilege that we're talking about. And a lot of them will reflexively hear what we're saying in this conversation. And if they are moved to want to know more, they will immediately want to turn to people of color and say, help me, teach me. As a way of deflecting that, what's a better approach for my listeners in this moment if they are so moved? What work do they need to be doing in and of themselves and not putting that burden on persons of color? I hope that I asked that question in in a way that makes sense. Yes, you did. And thank you for asking, because that is the that is the reflexes, embarrassment, and then I need to fix it. And can I fix it by befriending the people that I'm trying to learn from? Or can I fix it by somehow asking them to help me? And that's not that is shouldn't be the the reaction. So what I would say is buy our books and listen to our music and look at our art. Follow us on social media, but don't feel the need to say things to us, you know, like just, just listen for a while. I think that we want to rush the listening. Like we want, we want to listen a little, and then we want to get to the action part. And what I tell people a lot is you need to listen for a long time. This is lifelong work of unlearning so many of the things that we've been taught in America about who we're supposed to be and who we are. So when, when there are black indigenous and other people of color who are speaking up, don't ask for more, but like read our books. Like when Native came out, the week it came out, I got messages from people basically asking me questions that I had answered in the book. And so my response is, here's my book. You know, I I literally released it this week. Could you read it? You know, like it's right there. I wrote this book because of so many of the questions I was getting about my own personal journey. I wanted to give a resource, you know, that this is my resource for people. There's so many Black, Indigenous, and other people of color who are giving resources all the time, even through a Twitter thread, that's a resource or a blog post or their books. You know, there there are resources all over the place. And I promise that Google can help and it really can. And I understand that people are afraid to do this wrong. And I think that a lot of the fear when people get started is that they're going to learn it wrong or make the mistakes. But facing the truth of America or the truth of our systems, the truth about patriarchy and white supremacy, like that's important work. And we don't need to worry about like, like the un, the unlearning is important. So don't jump to being scared to do the work and then not do it. And so I just, I want to encourage people to lean into the listening and the unlearning because it takes a long time and that's okay. It should take a long time. What we've begun to venture into is the idea of decolonization within the church. And so let me, let me try this out and you tell me what I've got right and what I need to adjust. So earlier in the conversation, we were talking about examples like Elizabeth Warren and she would pick up 
the privilege of having a Native American identification that allowed her to get a scholarship, but she wouldn't necessarily pick up the pain that was associated with all of the heritage and the trauma that had gone with Native American heritage. So a lot of times when we're talking about colonization, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's the attempt to pick up and appropriate things that we like in another culture. And by we, I mean white presenting people, things that we like in another culture while ignoring the pain of the other culture. And if I'm hearing correctly, decolonization and the work that we're talking about is slowing down and actually for once in our heritage lives, feeling that pain and lingering with that pain and being able to have empathy with that pain. So first of all, as I characterize it that way and and give those kind of concrete examples, am I tracking correctly or, or are there things that I should correct? Well, that, I think that that is part of it, what you're saying. And then the other part of colonization is demonizing our resilience in the first place. So when we do live into the fullness of who we are, that becomes a problem for whiteness. You know, systems of whiteness and white supremacy are set up to dominate. And so if Black people, Indigenous people, people of color are thriving, then that's a problem for whiteness because systems of whiteness are set up to disenfranchise us. And so then what happens is you know, decolonizing part of that work is having to decenter whiteness. And that, but in my mind, when I've, I've said this in the book, that I think that decolonization is an invitation for everyone. I think that all of us have ways to decolonize. You know, if we are white, then we need to have honest conversations about white privilege and white supremacy. If we, you know, black people are having these conversations, we're all affected by white supremacy in one way or another. And we need to ask how. And have these conversations about what decolonization means to us personally, and then how that relates to others in our spheres or in our country. I think that what can happen when people do start to decolonize is they want to become, it's like they want to take on the part of that group. Like, I'll just become more native like you. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you to become who you are. Like, I often frame it like, come home to yourself, like, come home to who you truly are. And that means being honest. Like, It's hard, but be honest about who you are. Be honest about who your ancestors were and have those conversations with your kids and your neighbors. You know, that's, we are just so scared of decentering whiteness because it's all we've known in America, but we have to do it if we want to be healed. (laughs) You know, like I write in Native, like we can't, basically we can't heal a wound that we're ignoring or that we're acting like isn't there. And this, this wound has been there the whole time. and to heal, we need to look at it and we need to treat it. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So coming home to ourselves, and you you say this in Native, part of coming home to myself as a person who has benefited greatly from white privilege in my life is acknowledging the pain and that, that my ancestors have caused, but also acknowledging as real the privilege that I have gotten literally on the backs of others in the past. But that's a way of beginning to not say, oh, woe is me, as you're saying, but instead to say, wow, I have contributed to the situation that we're in, and I have benefited from the pain that has contributed to the situation that we're in. I need to start sitting with that and finding ways to repent of that and make differences with that. And that doesn't mean turning my back on it and ignoring it. What strikes me in what you're saying is how incredibly hopeful this work has to be. 
And I, I say that as, uh, looking back at, at you having that moment of epiphany, realizing, oh, I too am an ancestor. I too am part of a legacy that will be passed on. And it must be difficult in the face of the world that we live in to maintain hope because it's a frustrating world. And so let me ask you, as we're coming to the close of the conversation, what are resources that you pull from that allow you to maintain hope and to stay in a space of forward motion? Yeah, I think having those moments, like I've talked about these moments of solidarity, where there are people who are very different from one another, but at the baseline of who we are, we are saying this work matters. And I'm going to do it alongside you, even if I'm not like you. And, you know, even online, even on Twitter, like just seeing people come alongside each other and say, like, I value and honor who you are. And I want you to value and honor who I am. And let's do this work together because it takes all of us. Like that gives me so much hope. And then of course, my children give me so much hope because they are the future. They're the thing that leads us on. And, you know, one thing that I have been finding myself doing in the past few weeks is reminding other people to drink more water and reminding myself to drink more water. And it's just been this, this reflex in me, like we need good medicine. We need to return to the source that heals us. And water is such an important healing uh, being for us. And so I just keep thinking like, how can we return, return to the earth, return to the sacredness of water and spirit and listening like those things bring me hope because if we're returning back to the gifts of the earth we are healing ourselves you know individually and collectively and that gives me a lot of hope like can we continue to do that together and i think we can and it's hard but i think that we can do it well caitlin curtis i have to say that i learned so much from your book native and i am so moved by the generosity of your of your attempts to be both uh, holistic and small and humble in the in the course of sort of writing this book it's incredibly honest i found parts of it difficult because of my background and i needed that difficulty and the generosity both in your writing this book and but also in taking the time to speak about it with my listeners and with me i just want to say how grateful i am thank you thank you we've been speaking today with caitlin curtis She's a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, a Christian, and a poet who speaks on faith and justice within the church as it relates to indigenous peoples. She's a monthly columnist for Sojourners and has contributed to On Being and Religion News Service. She's been featured on CBS and USA Today and The New Yorker. She's also the author of Glory Happening, and today we've been talking about her recent book, Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. 
I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.